From the WGLT Newsroom, good morning, I'm Jack Palasnik. Over the next decade, Bloomington and Normal will spend about $101 million to remove lead water service lines. Almost all of that is in Bloomington. Bloomington Water Director Ed Andrews says the city will take out 1,000 lines per year. That'll happen at the same time the city replaces water mains, but Andrews says there will be separate high-priority batches as well. There's some in-home daycare facilities. We would ensure that they're not on a lead service. That would be a priority. There's also some low-to-moderate income neighborhood potential incentives that we can apply for some cost share. Lead can poison people in several ways, though the city and town have not had impermissible lead levels in drinking water. The Federal Environmental Protection Agency is forcing cities and towns to do the work. The city of Bloomington has begun condemnation proceedings on the long vacant front and center building downtown. The former Montgomery wards has been a concern for several mayors. City manager Tim Gleason says the city has been unable so far to prompt repairs and redevelopment. This is a highly visible property in our downtown and uh, we've been trying to address uh, the state of disrepair and the lack of occupancy uh, since you know I, I started here six years ago and know it was even before then. Leeson says the filing could turn into a years-long process if the Huff family that owns the property contests the issue in court. He says the deterioration of the building can affect nearby structures as well. Gleason says it's not uncommon in municipalities that after such processes, the property is turned over to the city and the city takes on demolition costs. An engineer with the Illinois Commerce Commission says a proposed carbon capture pipeline for eastern McLean County poses too many risks. The commission's Mark Maple testifies the project is not in the public's interest. One Earth Energy wants to pump carbon dioxide produced at its ethanol plant in Gibson City into three wells in the Saybrook area. The carbon would then be sequestered deep underground. McLean County previously rejected permits for the wells, but said the company could reapply once it comes up with a safety plan. The Commerce Commission is expected to issue a ruling on the project by late summer. And State Farm Insurance lost more than $6 billion last year, but the Bloomington-based company's net worth rose by several billion to $135 billion. State Farm says more severe claims and more weather catastrophes drove the unfavorable results. The losses are slightly smaller than they were in 2022. I'm Jack Palesnik. Support for WGLT comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The CPB's Community Service Grant helps WGLT bring you Morning Edition, All Things Considered, and more programming on which you depend for news, information, and entertainment. Additional support comes from WGLT listeners. This is 89.1 WGLT and WGLT.org. Hi, it's Jen White. 1A is the place for daily conversation that takes you beyond the headlines. We bring together thoughtful guests and listeners from every state to help us take the pulse of America. And together, we'll get to the heart of the story. Listen at 9 a.m. on WGLT, Bloomington Normals Public Radio. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. 
I'm Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. The leaders of 23 European Parliamentary Assembly sent a letter to House Speaker Mike Johnson asking him to release the $60 billion the White House has requested to help Ukraine continue its fight against the Russian invaders, saying Russia's increasing success on the battlefield is being supported by and is inspiring other dictators and, quote, putting us on the brink of new confrontations, unquote. The move was initiated by Lauri Husa, president of Estonia's parliament. We reached him in Munich, Germany earlier. We had a, a very long discussions with uh, approximately 30 to 40 Congress members a month ago when the Baltic speakers visited uh, Washington, D.C. And we had also a long discussion with uh, Mr. Johnson, the Speaker of the House. Actually, we had been really convinced that the will to help Ukraine is there. So therefore, making the letter, it is uh, it's really talking about our common values. It is about the necessity to stop the dictators. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, it is about a very tense situation in Ukraine. Did you walk away from that meeting with any sense of why, if there is a will to help Ukraine, what the holdup is in moving this funding forward? Uh, yes, the, the, he explained about the domestic politics, of course, but he also explained that he totally understands the necessity to help Ukraine. So therefore, I'm still optimistic. And all the speakers of the parliaments are really interacting with each other, are trying to find the solutions to protect our freedom and our values. And I really hope that the U.S. Congress will make this uh, historic decision on helping Ukraine, as the European Union did already the same decision. And also, Estonia is a small country, but we are actually the biggest supporter of Ukraine per capita. Estonia has already contributed to Ukraine 1.4% from uh, our GDP as military aid. And starting from this year, we will give 0.25% from our GDP yearly as a military aid to Ukraine. That means that in 2027, the total sum will be 1.3 billion euros. And for 1.3 million people, it is a lot. I understand you're saying that you are doing your part and that European countries are doing their part. You have 23 heads of assemblies from 19 countries who co-signed the letter, but there are 27 countries in the EU. So for those who were holdouts, did they give you any reason why they didn't participate in this joint letter? Probably there was not enough time to gather all the signatures, but we are all together in this fight uh, against uh, tyranny and aggression. And therefore, we must also make together the decisions which actually uh, really uh, are trying to preserve the democracy and freedom in the world. Because this is not only the Ukrainians' fight for freedom. This is the fight for the free world. How much of a threat is, in your view, a resurgent Russia, a belligerent Russia, an aggressive Russia, for countries like yours, which border Russia? We never had uh, the blue glasses. Uh, we always uh, said that Russia is a threat and therefore also we increased our defense budget to 3.2% from the GDP. We are trying to develop our defense capabilities as much as we can. Of course, we work closely with our allies. There are British, US, French troops. Uh, there are rotating air policing uh, in the Baltics. That means that we are trying to do the utmost to build up such a deterrence that Russia will never dare to attack any NATO country. But still, as we saw what 
the actions of Vladimir Putin. He is preparing for a long-time war. He has built up the wartime economy. He is preparing for revenge. That means that we must prepare also ourselves. That is Lauri Husa, who is president of Estonia's parliament. We were able to reach him in Munich, Germany. Mr. Husa, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you, and uh, have a nice day. Much of the death and destruction in the war between Israel and Hamas has happened in the Gaza Strip. But the fallout of the attacks on October 7th is also deeply affecting the lives of Palestinians in the West Bank. Here's NPR's Eder Peralta. The wind is so strong, it makes the fog twirl around the top of the hill. And then it's gone, disappeared into the night sky. Khalid Hamad Afranji walks on top of the wreckage. The mangled metal, the broken concrete, pieces of what used to be the Palestine Equestrian Club. It's cold out here. Franji shrinks into his jacket like he too wants to disappear. I spent all my life on this. This was his dream. He fell in love with horses in Jericho. As a young man, he would groom horses, and in return, the owners would let him ride for free. This place is everything he has worked for. He spent a decade building one of the few horse-riding clubs in the West Bank. Uh, I don't know. They came without telling me you know, they wanted to destroy. They came just to destroy everything. You know, they destroy the stable when the horse was inside. Without a warning, he says, Israeli security forces showed up with excavators, told him this was Palestinian land controlled by the Israeli military, so he couldn't build here, and they began to tear it apart. Do you think this would have happened before the war anyway? No. There were demolitions before the war, but Israel gave warnings, he says. Even when they demolished, soldiers would salvage the valuables, set aside TVs, couches, refrigerators. You could reason with the Israeli forces, he says, show them your paperwork. But everything changed after the October 7th Hamas attack that left some 1,200 people dead in Israel. And now, if you just spoke one word, they will shoot you. He says it's like the Israeli forces have taken the decision to shoot first and ask questions later. Halid Afranji looks across the hill where the riding arena used to be, where he had built a cafe inside a shipping container. Now, it's all rubble. If you look here, it's, uh, and if you look on the stable, like what's happening now, it's, uh, what's Gaza? The same. Yeah. <laughs> the same now. The same as Gaza. And then, like the people in Gaza, he walks across the rubble looking for pieces of wood, what used to be furniture, what used to be walls, to throw them into a fire. The war in Gaza has changed everything, people here say. It's not that things were okay in the West Bank. Palestinians live under Israeli occupation and a system that human rights groups, including Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, called apartheid. But... There used to be rules. Thayret Taher, who works at the Betunia municipality in the West Bank, says before the war, for example, Israeli authorities might have even asked someone they wanted to arrest to turn themselves in. Now they deal with increased harassment, and the arrests, he says, have gotten more violent. A trip that used to take 30 minutes for Thayer now takes two hours, he says, because of all the checkpoints. 
They now treat the Palestinian people as animals. The Israeli military did not respond to our detailed request for comment on this story. But in the past, Israel has defended its actions in the West Bank, saying it is trying to protect itself from attacks. The mayor of Beitunia says the escalation by Israeli forces doesn't really surprise him. He knew when the war started in Gaza that the situation in the West Bank would deteriorate as well. If you look at the terrible scenes in the West Bank, you realize the mentality and the behavior of the soldiers is the same as in Gaza, he says. They're trained by the same people. They have the same culture, the same policies, the same behavior. Outside the Armush house, just on the outskirts of Betunia, there are still signs of celebration. Palestinian flags and graffiti welcome home Taha Armush. His mother, Reika Armush, who's 63, says he was released from jail by Israel six days before the war. That day I felt my, my diabetes has been healed. I was so happy. Taha and two of his brothers had been thrown in jail by Israel and held under administrative detention for more than a year. Israel often holds Palestinians for long periods on the suspicion they might commit a future crime. When Taha was released, Regar Mush says it was the first time her whole family was together in years. It was sweeter than a wedding, she says. Now she hangs her head and opens the door. The damage is everywhere. Cupboards have been toppled, TVs have been broken, in one room walls have been smashed with hammers. The whole family saw the Israeli military blast doors and turn over couches. It felt like the family had been keeping everything inside and then found the words to say it all at the same time. How soldiers handcuffed a 13-year-old boy, how a daughter clung to her father as soldiers tried to take him, how the soldiers tried to figure out if they were members of Hamas or the more moderate Fatah, the 16-year-old shows me the scars on his forehead from the beating he got. They ask, are you Hamas or Fatih? And because we're dressed the way the, the Gaza people are dressed, they treat us like the people in Gaza. She doesn't understand what happened. Suddenly, her grandkids are without fathers. She's struggling to make all her payments. But she always comes back to that celebration. When Taha got out, I said, thank God, all my sons are with me. And we don't want war. We don't want war. For a moment, she thought her family could live a normal life. But the war she did not want came anyway, and her world came tumbling down. Ada Pralta. PR News reporting from Rafat and Beitunia in the West Bank. This is NPR News. I'm Peter O'Dowd. Teaching four year olds is a joy for Matt Wallace. But like many early educators, he struggles to get by on low wages. We need better pay so that I don't have to rely on the government to have a roof over my head. A new program may help next time on Here and Now. 
Next time for Here and Now is today at noon on 89.1 WGLT and WGLT.org. WGLT's Highway 309 Live returns March 20th. Somebody called him this free show at the Normal Theater celebrates Women's History Month with Nashville's Chris Matthews and Peoria's Sarah and the Underground. You'll also hear WGLT personalities in conversations with both artists. Highway 309 Live returns Wednesday, March 20th at the Normal Theater. Details at WGLT.org. The latest in national politics, inspiring podcasts, and a report from your local school board meeting last week. You can hear it all in one place with the NPR app. Download it today. Go to npr.org app to listen to WGLT and NPR on your time. Voters in 17 states and territories cast their ballots on Super Tuesday, the biggest primary day of the year. With more than a third of Republican delegates up for grabs, it may be Nikki Haley's last chance to challenge former President Donald Trump. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Join Scott Detrow and me for live special coverage from NPR News. Election 2024. Get closer to the issues. Get closer to your vote. Listen this Tuesday at 7 p.m. on 89.1 WGLT. From the campus of Illinois State University. This is 89.1 WGLT Normal, part of the NPR Network. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Schwab, with Schwab investing themes like artificial intelligence, renewable energy, or pet passion. Over 40 themes to choose from. Learn more at schwab.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world, where innovation meets the law. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, at macfound.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Firefighters are trying to contain a wildfire in the Texas Panhandle. It's burned about 1,700 square miles. Not acres, square miles. 1,700, the largest wildfire in Texas history. Rachel Ogier-Lindley of the Texas Newsroom has glimpses of life near the burn zone. Jessamine English is manning the cash register at Alexander's, a favorite convenience store in Delhi in the tiny town of Canadian, Texas. And all week, she's been ringing up a lot of hungry and tired firefighters whose food and drink are free because of community donations. Sometimes we have to argue a little bit, <laughs> but no, food is covered. We are just thankful that you are here to help. Canadian, population under 3,000, is one of several small communities dotting the plains north of Amarillo, ordered to evacuate Tuesday as the fast-moving fire swept through the region. Homes were destroyed, grasslands and ranches scorched. It was heartbreaking. It was very heartbreaking to see. Heather Helms is picking up some food. I mean, you just don't even realize that in a split of a second it can all be gone. Helms drove from Oklahoma to be with her parents. Her father helped residents get out as the fire approached. Right now, I'm just waiting for my dad to get out of the hospital because he inhaled too much smoke, so they're keeping him for another day. With the region's high winds and years of drought, people living here have seen fires before, but nothing like this. It's definitely a historical fire. 
Juan Rodriguez is with the Texas A&M Forest Service, the state's lead firefighting agency. He says conditions, including strong winds and unseasonably warm weather, contributed to the fire's rapid spread. We were experiencing winds sustained at 30 to 40 miles an hour, wind gusts up to 60 to 70 miles an hour. The fire was moving extremely fast, consuming everything in its path. Two women are the only confirmed deaths so far, and officials say tens of thousands of cattle were likely killed. A few miles west of Canadian's main strip, dozens of cows wander the roads. All around, the grass is charred and black. That's the generator. Here, Tatum Pennington and her husband run a ranch with some 300 head of cattle. And right now we would be at the height of calving season, so we've had a lot of babies and mamas that have passed away. When the fire got close, Pennington evacuated with her children and dogs. They're back now, but didn't have power until volunteers brought over a generator yesterday. You can hear it rumbling in the wind outside her house as she points out the devastation on her property. We found several cattle that were burned severely, but they weren't dead yet. It was just gruesome. It, that's probably been the toughest, darkest moments we've had. Um, we had to shoot a bunch of cattle yesterday. She says it'll take years to build back the operation. And Texas officials are warning that higher winds and warmer weather this weekend could expand the fire if firefighters can't get a handle on the blaze soon. For NPR News, I'm Rachel Osher-Lindley in Canadian, Texas. Time now for StoryCorps. Coverage of the January 6th attack on the Capitol left Rafael Cancel Vasquez in disbelief. Watching the news, they kept on talking about how this was the first armed attack in the U.S. Congress. And I was like, what? You don't know about 1954? 70 years ago today, his father, Rafael Cancel Miranda, and three other Puerto Rican nationalists opened fire in the House of Representatives and injured several congressmen. The demonstration for Puerto Rican independence earned Cancel Miranda 25 years in prison. At StoryCorps, he was remembered by his son and his wife, Maria de los Angeles Vasquez. And a warning, some of their recollections include graphic descriptions of violence. It was presented to the public that the people that took part in that act were crazy. Rafael was sent to Alcatraz and they were forgotten. How did you meet Papa and how did you fall in love? (laughs) Well, it wasn't until the 70s that people started talking about these four Puerto Ricans that were imprisoned in the States. They had been in jail already for about 20 years And there was this big campaign to send a Christmas card to nationalists. So I sent him a picture of an orchid. And he wrote back, to my surprise, telling me how thankful he was because he had forgotten that flower pots existed. You know, I thought, gosh, this man has been in jail for so many years and he is still moved by a flower pot. When I was growing up, there was always orchids at our house. Uh But I just thought that you loved orchids. I didn't know that it was very special for him, too. You know, when I was a little kid, I had no clue about what dad did. I just knew that whenever we went somewhere, everybody wanted an autograph, a picture, or like, oh, Don Rafa, it's an honor to meet you. And I was like, wow, my dad is so cool. He's cooler than yours. (laughs) (laughs) After you learned about March 1st, 54, did that change your relationship with your father? Of course, some of the things when I was a little kid then made more sense. He would always be in state of alert. For example, when he would take me to eat, I would always notice that he would sit 
in a way that he could look at the exit. And he would say, hijo, siempre mira para todos lados. Like, always look everywhere. But he was always so loving and gentle and kind. I remember asking him like that, how on earth did you grab a gun and started shooting people? And he told me about when he was a little kid, his mom and dad went out to a march. And one of the police chiefs was like, shoot to kill. So his mom and dad went to a protest dressed in white and they came back dressed in red because they had to drag themselves over dead bodies. That was his first memory. How do you think your father would like to be remembered? For me, Papa, he was my best friend. But I think he would like to be remembered como un puertorriqueño de los pies a la cabeza. Uh -huh. As a true Puerto Rican from head to toe and able to look at himself in the mirror every day and feel respect. I think that's how he would love to be remembered. Rafael Cancel Vázquez with his mother, Maria de los Ángeles Vázquez, remembering Rafael Cancel Miranda. He died in 2020. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru, featuring the 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness. With standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and all-terrain tires, it's designed for paths not yet taken. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. And from Dignity Memorial, helping families protect their loved ones and gain peace of mind by planning cremations and funerals in advance. Dedicated to professionalism and compassion in every detail. More at DignityMemorial.com. This is NPR News. Scientists have just wrapped a detailed study of a crucial glacier in West Antarctica, which holds back a giant sheet of ice. And they say they have a clearer picture of future sea level rise. I think we have uh, been able to get a better forecast for uh, what's likely to come out of Antarctica over the next uh, century or so. That story on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today at 3 on 89.1 WGLT and WGLT.org. It was a big week for macroeconomic data with new numbers on inflation and our country's GDP. All of this week's top economic stories next time on Marketplace. Listen to Marketplace beginning at 5.30 this afternoon on WGLT, sponsored by CEFQ. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Police in Moscow are out in force today for the funeral service and burial of Russian political opposition leader Alexei Navalny. He died last month at the age of 47 at an Arctic penal colony where he was being held. Moscow says Navalny died suddenly of natural causes. Navalny's family and supporters accuse Russia of killing him. President Biden and former President Donald Trump traveled to Texas yesterday. They made separate visits along the U.S. southern border where they accused each other of failing to secure the border from illegal migration. Sergio Martinez Beltran with the Texas Newsroom says Biden called on Congress to pass legislation opposed by many Republicans in the House. President Biden told agents at the Brownsville Border Patrol Station that he will fight for the Senate deal, which would give them more personnel and technology to detect threats in the southern border. Biden called on Congress to revisit the bill. It's time for the speakers and some of my Republican friends in Congress who are blocking this bill to show a little spine. 
Biden says former President Trump is also responsible for the bill stalling after he put some pressure on Republicans to not support it. This marked Biden's second visit to the southern border since being elected in 2020. For NPR News, I'm Sergio Martinez Beltran in Olmitos, Texas. This is NPR News from Washington.